Hello, and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Neurology. I'm Heather Brown, one of the senior editors at the journal. For our August 2022 podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Andreas Haridimou, instructor in neurology and senior resident at Boston University Medical Center and postdoctoral fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital. His paper in the August issue of The Lancet Neurology presents version two of the Boston criteria for diagnosis of cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Your paper reports new criteria for diagnosis of cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Can you briefly explain for anyone who doesn't know, what is cerebral amyloid angiopathy or CAA? Yeah, sure. So cerebral amyloid angiopathy is a small vessel disease in the brain. It's a condition which is quite common as it affects uh, mainly uh, older people. And uh, uh, the most characteristic uh, finding in this condition is that a protein called amyloid is uh, uh, slowly accumulated over the years into the walls of the very small vessels. And it predominantly affects the small vessels which are very superficial in the brain. So cortical vessels that go deep into the uh, uh, cortical layers, as well as uh, uh, the vessels in the leptomeningeal space. Uh, And just for comprehensiveness, the other small vessel disease in the brain is hypertensive arteriopathy. So this is another condition which is associated with hypertension, diabetes, and vascular risk factors, and is not associated with amyloid deposition into the brain. And you were aiming to update the previous version of the Boston criteria for diagnosis of cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Why was an update needed? Thanks for this question. So the Boston criteria for uh, cerebral amyloid angiopathy were originally suggested and designed back in the 1995. And the primary aim of those criteria was to diagnose lobar hemorrhages associated with amyloid angiopathy, which is one of the most common presentations of the disease. The latest update of that criteria were in 2010. Between that time and now, we have learned so much more about amyloid angiopathy. And what's clinically relevant is that we have learned that amyloid angiopathy presents with uh, a number of different presentations other than uh, spontaneous hemorrhage into uh, lower areas of the brain. For example, it can present with transient focal neurological episodes in elderly individuals, often associated with uh, small uh, convexal subarachnoid hemorrhages. Amyloid angiopathy is also now recognized as a key contributor to uh, vascular dementia, and even a key contributor to dementia associated with uh, neurodegenerative pathologies like Alzheimer's disease. And it's also, of course, a condition that we often see evidence of incidentally on brain MRI. Talking about brain MRI, that was the other need to update the criteria because our imaging techniques and our, and our ability to increase the armamentarium of biomarkers of this condition has significantly expanded. So there was a pressing need to expand the, uh, uh, the capture within this criteria of different phenotypes, both clinically and imaging based of cerebral amyloid angiopathy, and also to really have a wide validation of this criteria in large cohorts, because the original criteria, the previous versions, were only validated in very small studies mainly including patients presenting with intracerebral hemorrhage and mainly coming from uh, 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 Massachusetts General Hospital. So we really wanted to see the performance of an updated version of criteria 
across different populations and different centers around the world in a large enough study that would allow us to do that. And who's been involved in this update to the criteria? So quite a number of people and centers have been involved. We have been uh, uh, fortunate to design this study within the International uh, Cerebral Amyloid Angiopathy Association, which includes many clinicians and uh, researchers that work on cerebral amyloid angiopathy. We originally came up with the idea of updating the criteria with uh, uh, my PhD supervisor at the time, Professor David Waring at University College London, and we were able to uh, design the initial steps of this study at the Massachusetts General Hospital with uh, Professor uh, Steve Greenberg. So we then put up the protocol uh, and our idea for discussion at one of the international CA meetings in order to recruit other centers around Europe. So we had a few number of centers which were all primarily centers that they have interest and high, high volume of patients with amyloid angiopathy. And this included centers in the UK, for example, the University of Edinburgh, centers in France, in Spain, in Italy. So quite a number of experts, both clinicians and researchers were involved in, in this uh, large effort. How did you decide what measures to include in the new version of the criteria? So in order to do that, we have done uh, uh, previously a systematic review of the literature, specifically focusing on um, clinically available MRI markers that over the years we had an indication that were associated with uh, amyloid angiopathy predominantly. So we had a specific set of markers uh, in mind. So the first one was what was included in the previous versions of the criteria, which was the presence of uh, lopar intracerebral hemorrhage, as well as the presence of a hemorrhagic imaging marker called cerebral microbleeds. Over the years, there was uh, significant evidence about another hemorrhagic marker of amyloid angiopathy called cortical superficial siderosis, which is basically hemosiderin deposition in the cortical areas of the brain, uh, presumably due to little bleeding events in uh, amyloid angiopathy affected leptomeningeal vessels. And then we expanded our um, search to include non-hemorrhagic markers. And these are markers essentially of, of small vessel disease that we have a signal that are more common in amyloid angiopathy versus other small vessel diseases. And they included a specific pattern of white matter hyperintensities, which entails basically small round subcortical spots in the uh, cerebral white matter. Uh, and uh, we had evidence that when there are 10 or more of these spots, they're quite significantly associated with uh, patients presenting with amyloid angiopathy. We also included uh, another marker called enlarged perivascular spaces, again in the cerebral white matter, based on evidence from observational studies showing that these are more common in patients with amyloid angiopathy. And we looked at different combinations of these markers and different cutoffs. Our primary aim was to include markers that any clinician can easily rate on the basic sequences that uh, uh, they're routinely taken in uh, any hospital in the world. And uh, this should be based on very easy to use uh, visual rating scales. And how did you then test the new criteria? So first, uh, uh, the basic design of our study 
was that uh, we needed to have the diagnostic gold star standard of amyloid angiopathy, which is still neuropathology. So we wanted to have patients that they presented with a, a clinical syndrome characteristic of amyloid angiopathy. For example, spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage, a transient focal neurological episodes that are not TIAs, and patients presenting with uh, different memory complaints in memory clinics with the diagnosis being some sort of neurodegenerative disorder. So we had clinical symptomatology, we had the pathological gold standard, and then the other requirement was that we needed patients to have had a brain MRI with sequences available for us to rate all of these imaging markers. And as a minimum, we wanted blood-sensitive sequences, T2-weighted sequences, and flare sequences. So these were the, tr the three main uh, inclusion criteria. And then we set, we set a wide net across our uh, uh, contributing centers to select these, the patients that potentially fulfill these criteria. We then uh, designed the study uh, in uh, three cohorts and derivation cohort, which uh, these were patients basically at the coordinating centers at Mass General Hospital and it spanned a specific uh, time period between inception, so roughly uh, mid-90s up to uh, 2010. And then the rest of the patients between that time frame up to 2019, from MGH again, uh, we pulled them together in a temporal validation cohort. Then all other centers outside Mass General Hospital uh, they basically consisted our geographic validation cohort. So we had a, a multi-step process during which within the derivation cohort, we came up with provisional criteria which used different combination of these imaging markers while still we wanted to preserve the basic structure of the Boston criteria and the basic diagnostic categories, but see if we can increase the sensitivity of uh, uh, CA diagnosis while maintaining a good specificity. So we came up with provisional criteria within the derivation cohort using different cutoffs and different imaging markers. And as soon as we were convinced that these are probably the best combination of uh, diagnostic categories, we tested them in the temporal validation cohort. And then we tested them for an extra validation in the geographic validation cohort to get measures of diagnostic performance, including sensitivity, specificity, area under the curve. And just to show that the high sensitivity and specificity that uh, we set at the derivation cohort maintains the same performance across the validation cohorts. And that was, these were the main steps. Then we had some predefined analysis that we can discuss later, but basically to get our final performance of these uh, uh, Boston Criteria version two, we also merged the three cohorts together and we looked at specific subgroups, for example, according to presentation, according to uh, um, the diagnostic co uh, goal standard and so forth. What are the main differences between the previous version of the Boston Criteria and the new version? So I think there are two main differences. Uh, the first one, when it comes to hemorrhagic markers, is that cortical superficial siderosis now has a central role in the criteria. 
For example, you can now, based on the Boston Criteria version 2, diagnose cerebral amyloid angiopathy just based on the presence of siderosis. You only need to quantify the extensiveness of the siderosis, which is a completely new feature uh, in the new criteria. And every area in the brain that has siderosis counts as one hemorrhagic manifestation of the disease. For example, if you have a patient presenting with transient focal neurological episodes who has two areas of cortical superficial siderosis, is diagnosed as a probable uh, amyloid angiopathy. But again, for the uh, for the audience, just to be familiar with the Boston criteria used uh, throughout the years, is that a central uh, requirement for probable amyloid angiopathy diagnosis is having at least two hemorrhagic lesions, either uh, a microbleed or a lower hemorrhage or any siderosis uh, without any evidence of deep hemorrhagic lesions. This time, siderosis counts as one central feature and you can actually quantify the extensiveness. So siderosis alone can make a patient being diagnosed with probable amyloid angiopathy. Now, the other big change is that we have now included and validated the presence of non-hemorrhagic markers counting towards uh, diagnostic evidence for CAA. And again, these markers include the uh, subcortical white matter hyperintensity spot pattern, having more than 10, and having severe perivascular spaces in the centrum semiovale. So in the criteria, again, for probable CA, if you have one hemorrhagic manifestation of CA, lower hemorrhage or a, ro- a lower microbleed or one area of siderosis, plus one of the two non-hemorrhagic manifestations, you still you can still diagnose patients as having probable CAA. And this is also true for possible CAA in that if you have uh, only the presence on, of one of the two non-hemorrhagic lesions, you can now diagnose the patient as having possible amyloid angiopathy. So to summarize the two main changes is the central role of siderosis, especially its severity and extensiveness, and the inclusion of non-hemorrhagic markers within the criteria. So you mentioned probable CAA and possible CAA there. What's the difference between the two and why why do you make that distinction? Originally, the Boston criteria were designed following a, a, a similar uh, a similar framework that uh, was used at the time for Alzheimer's disease. So the idea is that that probable CAA, which is, by the way, the diagnostic category most often used in clinical practice as well as research, conveys the best diagnostic performance for me- and confidence in making a diagnosis of amyloid angiopathy without having any neuropathological tissue available. And is based on having multiple manifestations on neuroimaging that we as human related to amyloid angiopathy. So the probable CA category has a very high uh, specificity, sometimes approaching 100%, whereas it maintains a very good sensitivity of around between 80 to 90%. Now, the possible category is, uh, uh, is a category that uh, conveys less diagnostic uh, information. The idea of the possible category is that you want to increase your sensitivity. So you include patients that they might potentially have amyloid angiopathy, 
in whom the imaging manifestations are not so extensive. Now we know that this category, the possible CA has low specificity. However, if you have, for example, a clinical trial or a research study that you don't want to miss any patient that potentially have amyloid angiopathy, but you're okay misdiagnosing some as false positives in that you assume they have CA based on the possible criteria, but actually they don't, this category allows researchers and clinicians to have a wider net of the condition. Also, possible amyloid angiopathy can potentially capture patients at an early stage of the disease, during which there hasn't been enough progression of the disease or enough imaging manifestations on, on, on brain MRI. But again, the best performance that someone can get to diagnose amyloid angiopathy lies within the probable CA category, which that's why it's the one used extensively in clinical practice. What are the main limitations of the new version of the criteria? So the new versions of the criteria, we have, uh, I, I think, of, of one big limitation. Uh, this big limitation is that we know that many elderly patients, they don't present and they don't have pure small vessel diseases. For example, it's sometimes rare to find patients with just cerebral amyloid angiopathy because they might have hypertension, they might have diabetes. So it's not uncommon for patients, for elderly patients, to have a combination of cerebral amyloid angiopathy and hypertensive arteriopathy. And within the criteria, you can only make a diagnosis of possible or probable CAA when there is no evidence of deep hemorrhagic lesions. So as soon as you have even one deep microbleed or one uh, deep hemorrhage, irrespective of how many features of amyloid angiopathy you see in the uh, cortical areas, the patient typically does not, uh, cannot be diagnosed with probable or possible CA. And I think this is the main limitation in that uh, we haven't had enough sample size to look at this particular question within the current paper, because there are so many patients that they actually have amyloid angiopathy plus another small vessel disease that uh, they cannot be formally diagnosed within our categories. So in a way, these categories are, are, are too strict, but they had to be uh, in order to increase the uh, sensitivity and specificity. What practical advice would you give clinicians if they have patients who do not formally fulfill the Boston criteria, but CAA is still suspected? Yeah, that, that, that's, a very, that's a very good question. And, and this is... Uh, a very commonly encountered scenario in everyday clinical practice, in stroke clinics, in uh, outpatient uh, neurology clinics, in memory clinics. So uh, my approach to that would, would be that I will do a comprehensive assessment of various markers of small vessel disease uh, in the brain MRI of these patients. For example, I would quantify lower microbleeds, deep microbleeds. I would look for all the non-hemorrhagic markers as well, to see how they're distributed. If you have uh, perivascular spaces in the basal ganglia, is more in favor of uh, hypertensive arteriopathy. If you have uh, perivascular spaces in the central semiovale, is more in favor of uh, amyloid angiopathy. However, the marker that really tips me off, that amyloid angiopathy is a big contributor in any given patient, is the presence of cortical superficial siderosis. 
because we know from uh, multiple observational studies that hypertensive arteriopathy is extremely rarely associated with this imaging marker. So when I see a patient with a typical presentation that can be amyloid angiopathy and has siderosis, irrespective of the presence of uh, any deep markers and irrespective if the patient actually fulfills formally the Boson criteria, I would treat that patient as presumably, presumably having amyloid angiopathy along with uh, uh, hypertensive arteriopathy. So again, superficial siderosis is a, should be like a central imaging marker in patients with mixed hemorrhagic manifestations. And finally, what are the next steps likely to be? So will the criteria need to be validated further? And do you think any further updates are going to be likely or needed? Yeah, I think that there is an obvious need as we uh, gain more knowledge and we expand uh, what we know about different biomarkers of amyloid angiopathy. Inevitably, there's going to be a need to uh, update the updated <laughs> Boston criteria. I can think of two next steps. Uh, the first next step is to look at this difficult scenario we just discussed in the previous question about patients not fulfilling this criteria because they have uh, uh, a deep hemorrhagic manifestation. So uh, we're trying to do a follow-up study where we're going to specifically look and do some deep phenotyping of these patients with uh, mixed uh, uh, hemorrhagic manifestations and see if we can come up with some sort of guidance on how the clinicians can make a presumptive diagnosis of CA in these patients. Now, I think the other update that it might be needed in the future is that uh, we have other non-MRI biomarkers of amyloid angiopathy. These potentially include amyloid beta PET imaging, tau PET imaging, as well as CSF and blood biomarkers. So. An update that I can think of is that we can move to a more comprehensive panel of uh, biomarker-based uh, diagnosis of amyloid angiopathy and see how we can use, for example, blood biomarkers or CSF biomarkers integrated within the current criteria to increase even further the diagnostic performance and also diagnose this condition in patients that um, uh, they fall somewhere in between our diagnostic categories or they don't formally fulfill these criteria. Dr. Herodimou, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It was very interesting discussing about uh, our study. You can read Dr. Herodimou's research online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Dr. Herodimou and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation with The Lancet Neurology wherever you usually get your podcasts.